Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. One of the most common topics that we've explored on the podcast is developmental psychology, how what happened to us as a child can influence our lives today. Those childhood events often have a huge impact on our nature and behavior, even in adulthood. And sometimes becoming increasingly happy and healthy as an adult is about unwinding the influence of negative events that happened during childhood. But alongside that, there can be a lot of value in connecting more with the person who we authentically were when we were young. There might be a sense for you of some kind of core nature, something that was present for you before the world started getting in the way. So today we're going to be exploring that child self and how it might help us become more fully realized as adults. So to help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I've been very much looking forward to this topic, which has a lot of personal meaning for me in terms of my own childhood, my own inner child or layers of inner children <laughs> inside me. And also, of course, because I knew you when you were a child. And I've also worked with a lot of children. Hmm. So this topic has a lot of meaning. And I was just thinking there for a moment, Forrest, when you were talking about the setup here in Buddhist psychology, there are these five major so-called hindrances that hinder our progression in practice, hmm. such as angry ill will against others or self-doubt. And the deep root of the word that's translated as hindrances actually means coverings. These are things that cover over our underlying good nature, including the underlying sweet, innocent, beautiful, wise, innermost childlike being mm. that still resides within each of us. Yeah, I think that something that's been really present for me, particularly over the last maybe five years, but honestly, for most of my adult life, I think that there are ways in which I've been almost trying to rediscover or get back to, in some way, the person that I was when I was pretty young, mm. when I was you know, three, four, five years old. Um, mm. Like I said in the introduction, before the world started pushing back on me in ways that made me feel uncertain or insecure or started editing core parts of my behavior or, geez, even my nature in some kind of real way, that weren't really the way that I wanted to be. <laughs> you know, like yeah. these things kind of popped out of me behaviorally in response to stuff that was going on out in the world. And now that I'm an adult and there can be this more kind of active creational element of who you want to be in the world, I'm looking at some of those behaviors and I'm going, man, maybe kid me knew a lot more than adult me does right now. Oh, yeah. That's kind of the process that I've been going through. And I think that's probably resonant for a lot of people. Yeah, there's this process of reclaiming, re-inhabiting. There's a place for regulating some of let's say our younger, I like that word younger, you know, the younger layers of our being. You know, some of them, like I mm -hmm. have a deep, deep background in the zero to three time frame of development when, you know, from birth to roughly the third birthday and then certainly onward. And yeah, there's a place for regulation and self-regulation. But wow, there's such a difference between regulation through guidance and encouragement compared to regulation through alarmist fault-finding and squelching or muzzling of the inner child within us or who we were as children, literally, 
squelching from our peers, our parents, our older siblings sometimes, other kinds of authority figures. And there's a lot of also cultural ideology about it. It's interesting for us, you know, I don't know if you know this detail about my own dissertation, which was about offering alternatives to toddlers rather than just saying no. Mm-hmm. So there's a collision between the wants of the kid, the wants of the parent. Everything's groovy when there's no collision, right? But when there's a difference, you know, toddler wants the steak knives, <laughs> and that's a little dangerous. So dad, mom, whoever says, eh, not the steak knives, how about these cool spoons? Or how about you help me make the cookies? Mm-hmm. And so you're guiding them in a different direction. I called it gratifying control. So it's this meeting that has thoroughly interested me, including currently in my work on relationships of love and power woven skillfully together, right? But one of the really interesting things about that, when I did the dive into the child development literature, including psychoanalytic literature and cultural literature, like the how children were regarded, There was a tremendous framing, certainly within the West, I'll just leave it at that, European, Eurocentric, and also in America, this view of the child as a savage, a kind of disgusting savage Mm. who needed the Mm -hmm. controlling Mm -hmm. force of civilization in the form of parental punishment, maybe, to get them to suppress their desires, which were nasty and dirty and bad. Yeah, totally. And so that they could behave properly. There there was that view of children, and we're still dealing with, I think, a fair amount of cultural residues of that fundamental view of kids, which is just wrong Yeah, in terms of both biology and psychology. It's just wrong. Yeah, no, I think that's a great summary of a pretty complicated territory for a lot of people. You Hmm. could definitely situate this culturally a little bit, although I can only speak to my own culture, which is a pretty like Western Eurocentric, like you were saying, perspective. But I think that you're totally right, that we often view children as having these inappropriate impulses that they need to suppress, to just summarize what you were saying there. And it's the job of society at large to hold those impulses down so that these more kind of top-down, highly cognitive processes can take place for the betterment of both the child and for the betterment of the society as a whole. But a lot of the time, what ends up happening is that we start censoring ourselves. Yeah. And we start censoring these very earnest and pure parts of our self expression because we are told over and over again, no, that is wrong. That is bad. Why would you do that? Yeah. But a lot of the time, those things are actually our most authentic impulses. And they are coincidentally, conveniently, the things that also bring us an enormous amount of joy in this lifetime. So, you know, they're both good for you psychologically. And they're perfectly fine most of the time out in the world when you are freed from the boundaries of like your middle school rule set, to kind of put it that way. So you've actually written a lot about why somebody might want to tap into a younger version of themselves. Hmm. We've talked about it a little bit already, but I would like to kind of start there. What's somebody actually doing when we talk about this, other than in kind of this very theoretical cognitive way that we've talked about it so far, how there might be some kind of implicit value there. But what could somebody do to get a sense of that younger, more Mm. earnest part of themselves, maybe? Well, one is to listen to the deeper layers or feel down in your reactions. Mm. So for example, sometimes people, including once in a while, a person I'm married to, but anyway, (laughs) will (laughs) warn me or will bring a certain alarm that we really got to get going or I really got to do something. Okay. And it's well-intended. 
it's fundamentally loving and so forth. And I'm aware of my immediate reaction of, well, why are you telling me this? I'm doing fine already. We're going to get where we got to go perfectly on time or whatever it is I'm doing, mowing the yard, you know, I'm mowing the yard just fine. I'm doing the dishes just fine, something like that. But very quickly, I can be aware of the ways in which that stimulus hits a kind of internal turbocharger that takes what might be on the zero to 10, you know, slightly inappropriate world landing on us scale of a one. And then it hits this turbocharger in which I grew up with parents who are very loving and decent and who were also very alarmist and fault-finding and controlling and suppressing about things that were just not a problem, really just not a problem. And so then those reactions from childhood get stirred up. They get reactivated, they get triggered. The brain is an associational mechanism. So one of the very useful things people can do mm. is to feel down into these younger layers including, let's say, the younger layer, in my case, I could speak of it and feel a kind of little Ricky inside, this little six-year-old or eight-year-old or four-year-old who feels, what? Who feels kind of shocked. I'm I'm good. I'm a good boy. I, I was just trying to help. It's all okay. Or why am I bad? It doesn't make sense. I, I want people to recognize that what I'm doing is okay, or at least help me without all this anger. You know, you can feel the longings. And one of the guides to this is they feel more at the core of your being. There's a softer simplicity in them. It's not that conceptual. Children are not, you know, really conceptual, typically, till they start approaching their teens. It's more sensory. It's more fundamental. It's concrete. It's, oh... Uh, you know, I'm a good boy. I'm a good boy. Why are you talking to me like I'm a bad boy when I'm not a bad boy? You know, it's very simple. And in it, you can feel this longing for closeness, longing to feel safer, mm -hmm. longing to feel appreciated. In other kinds of contexts, the longing to feel protected, to, the, to feel that others are sticking up for you. So this this process of kind of feeling down into younger layers. And it doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with them. Mm. Some of the longings of a child are just unrealistic in adulthood for perfect responsiveness, let's say, from other people. We don't have caregivers typically in adulthood like we need in early childhood. But there's a there's a sense of the of the goodness and the all rightness of these under feelings inside. And something really happens mm -hmm. when you open up to them. Mm -hmm. And I've known a lot of people who are have a really hard time just doing what I just did here, tuning in, mm. in a allyship kind of way. Yeah. Being an ally to the younger layers of your own psyche, mm. right? That's actually quite hard for many people because they've internalized what the world did to them. So if the world shamed or pushed away or pushed down those younger parts, they often internalize that and do it to themselves. Mm. And so one of the pieces of the journey here is to overcome those understandable but still problematic tendencies in oneself so you can sit more in this kind of quality of being almost like a good parent today to the younger layers of your being. Mm. I think that's really lovely. I was talking with a friend recently who... 
I'm just trying to, I know some of my friends actually do in fact listen to the podcast, so I'm just trying to remove <laughs> identifying details here. But he was kind of going through some stuff in their life where they're they're encountering these questions about how they want to relate to a particular kind of thing, to put it really generally. And so I asked them a question where I said, well, do you feel like you can kind of get in touch with what you would have wanted when you were a kid or maybe what your core nature was mm. when you were along younger? And they responded to me. Great question. Honestly, I don't feel like I have a great sense for it, exactly like you were saying. They basically said, I don't know who that person was. I don't have a great memory mm. for what I was like when I was yeah. five, six, seven, eight years old. Yeah. And I think that this is really common. I think a lot of people really struggle to connect to that person for a lot of different reasons, some of which might be functional, memory-based. They didn't take a lot of pictures when they were a kid. They don't have a lot of home videos floating around. Maybe it's somebody who's a little bit on the older side, so just like having a handy cam at home was not really a thing. Yeah. Or it might be more psychological defense-oriented. Maybe there's something there that feels unpleasant to contact. Maybe it feels very vulnerable. Maybe it feels very unsafe in some way. And that's all just to reaffirm or to affirm what you were saying a second ago about the challenges that some people have in contacting this younger material. So I do think that that can, as you were saying, be a really helpful question. You know, do you have a feeling for what you were like or for what that person might have wanted just at the core? Not so much in the idealistic child way, as you were saying, some child idealism is not realistic as an adult, yeah. but just in like a core values kind of way. Like, were you more of a somatic person or were you more of a kind of cognitive person? Were you a really intense feeler or did you not really like that kind of stuff so much? Did you want to be in contact with people or did you kind of want to be on your own? And you can just kind of run through a series of questions. And when you start to see big differences between that younger version and the person you are now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you now, but it could be just a place for some fruitful inquiry around, huh, is that something that you want to have more contact with or less as you continue to age? You bet. One of the most powerful therapeutic techniques I know, and people can just do it generally, uh, I would ask clients to get a hold of whatever you can, 30 pictures of your childhood, going as far back as you possibly can. And then we would just look at the pictures and you would see even the most intellectualized, defended, out-of-touch person soften in the room. And we would slow it down. We would Sometimes what I would do is I would hold my hand over everything except the face of someone. And I would just say, what do you see in that face? Maybe it was the face of their, their mother, their grandmother, or themselves, or their father, let's say, whatever. And what do you see there? And what can you remember of that time? Or what was happening in that time? So you're, you're exploring that. And an interesting question, too, is when do you see the face change? Like in my face, mm. honestly, you can see this young, sweet boy, wide open, really interested in the world. And by the time that boy is nine or 10, that face is guarded, careful, watchful, and very oriented around never, ever, ever making a mistake. <laughs> you know, And then 
<laughs> me. You you have the class picture when I was a freshman in high school, and I was however old I was, I was maybe twelve as a freshman, and it's in Latin Club, and there's a bleacher full of I don't know 150 kids. I went to a big high school <laughs> who are looking at the camera, except there's one kid in the front row, all the way to the end of one front row, who's looking off to the side as that picture is taken, and that kid is me. So you can see a lot mm. when you go back and look, and that's one way you end up getting you know, in touch with things. Another is to ask people if you can, especially before they are no longer here, just w what was happening, you know, kind of autobiographically, no praise, no blame, no criticism, and you learn amazing things. Like suddenly you hear that, oh, there were two or three miscarriages before you were born, and you were absolutely wanted. You were desperately wanted. In my case, let's say. Mm. On the other hand, you might hear, oh, wow, your mom got pregnant when you were four months old and fairly quickly went into really serious morning sickness while your dad was still finishing his PhD uh, in zoology in Arizona. Mm. And mm -hmm. wow, that has a lot of implications. You start suddenly understanding things, you know. Or you start hearing stories about a move that needed to occur or an injury. You never knew that you fell off your bike and had a really, really serious concussion when you were four years old. And that might explain some of the stuff you're dealing with now as a 44-year-old. And maybe there's something you could do about it. So recreating mm. your childhood, that can be really, really valuable mm. to you. Or even just kind of inferring certain things from details especially as an adult, you start having an appreciation for what it must have been like for your parents, let's say, when you were young because they had to hold down two jobs or they worked the night shift as well or there was a lot of anger or, oh, you start, you hear that your dad drank a lot. He doesn't anymore, but he used to drink a lot. Like, oh, and that's all really, really good information hmm. for kind of reclaiming the truth of how it was for you. Yeah, I think that's something that we could do here if you're up for it, is that I could almost kind of talk through what I've been kind of feeling into recently in my own process, as we've already sort of started to do here. That'd be great. Yeah, and then maybe yeah. you could kind of tell me what do you think is going on there, give any additional commentary that you want to toss in, oh, both from your perspective sure. as my parent, of course, yeah. which we could do that part. But I really mean in kind of more of a general way that people could use yeah, definitely. to apply this sort of a process to their own life if they're interested in that. Yeah. So to start with, I think that there's been this increasing process over the last couple of years here of trying to tune into that younger version of myself. And when I say younger, I'm really talking about the version that maybe existed when I was like six, seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. More playful, more open, less serious, a little bit more light, a little bit less bothered. I think that kids have a remarkable capacity for resilience, even as they are quite sensitive about some specific things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the old line about if, I mean, please don't do this, this is a joke, but if you if you throw a kid out of a window, they'll bounce, you know, as opposed uh, to like an older person don't you do throw that. them out of a window, they splat. <laughs> There's kind of a different, please don't do this, yeah. but it's a joke, you know? It's that idea of that snapping back, particularly psychologically, even though we do know, of course, that those early years have enormous consequence down the line, particularly in terms of traumatic experiences. But I think it's just true that kids can handle a lot and get used to a lot. Mm -hmm. If you see particularly the behavior of children in developing countries who are in enormously restricted, enormously traumatic circumstances and their ability to survive regardless. So elements of that. Um, 
a big thing for me is just kind of lightening up around a lot of stuff, having this experience of a younger person who was more playful and kind of more relaxed, mm. more emotionally open and kind of authentically uncovered with other people because they're not as worried about getting kind of negative stimuli from them back. Just as you were saying, I went through this big process, I think it was pre-COVID, maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, of looking at a bunch of pictures and videos of myself when I was really quite young mm. and having just a really interesting emotional process around it where a lot of it was really like heartfelt and soulful and sweet. And there were some moments where I just saw, you know, eight-year-old Forrest doing something. And I, I kind of felt like almost ashamed of it, like mm. I was applying my 33-year-old brain to the behavior of the seven-year-old kid or whatever in a way that, you know, logically I know isn't appropriate. Mm. But it's interesting how that feeling can kind of boil up there. And then you can reckon with it. You can go, huh, where's this coming from? Why do I feel this way? How have I internalized some kind of shame cycle around this particular behavior? Mm. And do I still want to be that way in the future? And what can I do to change that? So that's the process that I've been going through myself. Maybe alongside that is this idea of like core desires and core values. Mm. When I was talking to that friend recently, it was really oriented around this question of how do you want to be and what do you really value? Because we internalize a lot of messages when we're young about whether or not something is quote unquote like a good thing, right? But those are all messages by and large that we're getting from other people. We're not getting them internally as much. Mm -hmm. And often those external messages are going to conflict on some level with what we feel good doing inside of ourselves. But most of the time for most kids, they're going to turn to the adults in the room to understand what's good and what's bad. And then we need to kind of re-legislate that when we're able to execute a little bit more top-down control and a little bit more certainty, a little bit more self-confidence in our own inner knowing. So mm -hmm. that's a lot of what I've been doing. I'm not sure if that was consistent with any of your process that you've gone through through these things or if you have just kind of a general thought on it. Well, it's, of course, very touching to hear you talk about this. And I'm going to try to keep my therapist hat on to some extent, not that we're doing therapy here, but just more just to bring that to bear <laughs> yeah. rather than you know, starting to cry here about, you know, feeling sad about uh, how things happened for you when you were little. And, and, and as you would say, I think as well, you had a generally happy, comfortable childhood, but still little things matter, little things add up. And I think that's a key takeaway for many people that in a seemingly, mm -hmm. you know, pleasant, comfortable, somewhat affluent life, uh, lots and lots of little things can really wear on a person. And we often start to feel like at some level, kind of like you're talking about, that our natural way of being is somehow a problem. Mm -hmm. It's not wanted. It's not effective. Don't be that. A version of that for me was that if I stood out in my classes as a smart kid, bad things happened. <laughs> Different kinds of bad things. So I just kind of went underground. Mm -hmm. I, I learned, oh, okay, you know, my natural intelligence just... Don't don't really shine that light here. Just keep it off stage. So that would be one example. Or a lot of the things I wanted to do independently, I learned pretty quickly, you know, get off my parents' radar and then pursue the things I like doing, which had often to do with going out into the forest around us or the hills around us and just making my forts or doing my things as a woodsman in training. You know, I could do that on my own. So kind of like you're saying, we naturally learn to somewhat hide 
and even distort our true, our kind of natural way of being, our natural character, our temperament. In your case, a kind of exuberance, let's say, because it wasn't really accepted. So absolutely. So here, if I, if I could ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. And I think it's a universal question. Hmm. What were the innately positive wants, the good longings and wants that were at the heart of the behaviors that the world shamed or punished or rejected. Mm -hmm. Deep down, what was the goodness inside, even if it was manifesting in ways that some people had an issue with? Yeah, it's a great question. And if you're listening, this is absolutely something where you can follow along and kind of ask yourself this question. I would strongly recommend it. Yeah, exactly. For me, I think that there were really two. And unsurprisingly, one of them is quite similar to one of yours, whether that's a nature thing or a nurture thing, who knows? But I think that one of them is quite similar. And it's to to be perceived as a good person. Somebody, you know, I, I wanted to be the good knight, not the bad knight, to kind of put it in that like classic mm-hmm. Jungian archetype sort of sense. I didn't want to be the Loki of the story, you know, like the chaotic mm-hmm. guy who kind of becomes yeah. a good guy, but he's a bit of an anti-hero. But that was like what what felt good inside of me. And then the second part of it was absolutely more socially valenced, which is that I really wanted to be in authentic, positive connection and relationship with other people. I wanted people to like me, and maybe even more so, I wanted to like them. I wanted to have a lot of really positive friendships. I think I've talked about it a little bit in the podcast in the past, but basically my favorite thing to do as a kid was to sort of run around my backyard with various different kids and kind of just these play these elaborate imaginary games, essentially. And it was purely relational. It, it's you and other people creating a story together, essentially, or having an interaction together. It wasn't through a phone or through a video game. Those all came later. Mm -hmm. The proto version was totally purely relationship driven. And the places where we as social animals are often the most vulnerable to negative feedback are through our relationships. So you have the experience as a kid where you're really desperate for social approval of various kinds. And, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, you have some wounds there. You have some harms there, and it, I think, causes many people, myself included certainly, to withdraw into some of those behaviors that are maybe a little bit more solitary, or the social impulse is coming to you through a filter that can create the separation that allows you to feel safe inside of that interaction. So I think that those were the two virtues that I would really highlight that really mattered a lot to me. Right. Here's a question that Mm. is kind of subtle, which is, Going back again, before relationality, before taking into account others, what were the deep desires or impulses or expressions in you before relationality, including ones that got criticism in your relationships, Mm -hmm. which then led to a wounding of those needs you were naming? But I'm kind of asking in a sense, before those needs even got into play, just in the in kind of the arising wellspring of your own expression as a being, as an eight-year-old, when you would maybe exuberantly come into a space and then get some pushback from other people, 
that uh, okay, you were yeah. too loud or too big or mm -hmm. okay, what was arising within you before relationships were relevant? Man, um it's interesting that most of the things that I can can think of in response to that question are themselves kind of relational in nature. So I'm sort of hunting for something that's that's pre-relational. I think it's a good question. This is a bit relational, but I I think that a desire to be expressive is also really real there and really present there. A desire to be big in my self-expression and a desire to share that, you know, that's a relational part with other people to an extent, I think is really present there as well. Maybe connected to that, a, a lot of like knowing and doing, a lot of learning, a lot of being just kind of fascinated with the world, maybe even at a kind of more core, non-relational way, this real enjoyment and engagement with just like being in a body, which I don't know if everyone has. Maybe most people do, but I, I think that that was really present for me, just like this feeling of the, yeah, that I that I really kind of enjoyed just like being in this existence and I found it very lovely at a certain level and I just took a lot of pleasure in it. I think about myself as like a three-year-old and maybe you can speak to this more effectively, but just kind of really enjoying like running around outside and like yes. getting fascinated with flowers and I don't know, petting small animals and just like that whole inherent yeah. exuberantness, I think it was really present in my nature. And, yeah. and maybe that's part of what was getting expressed socially with other people right. that, that led to, you know, some challenges from time to time. Right, exactly. So pre-relationship, in effect, mm -hmm. you're speaking mm -hmm. of a delight, a delight with life, a joie de vivre mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. bubbled up within you yeah. and then bubbled out yeah. into relationship. But it was prior to relationship. Yeah. It was natural. It was exuberance. And an excitability. Yeah. yeah. A delight and mm -hmm. aliveness. Great. And then, then it got you into trouble, right? So here's a key question. And then people can generalize for it, you know, to try to get down to this core mm -hmm. root desire. Can you claim now a validation of it, a feeling of the all rightness of it? Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. And I think increasingly trying to, absolutely. And it feels good and it feels natural more and more in different ways. I think there are ways where things like the podcast are absolutely an expression of that. Um, so it's crept into my work life as well. And I think that that's a really lovely question, Dad. Like, can you claim that in an authentic way in your adulthood? So there's where it's a little tricky, too. Imagine that little kid you once were, okay? And it's sort of like tapping into what was really at the origin point yeah. of yeah. what then mm. Rippled out and got pushback from the world, which then created a lot of secondary issues, which created a secondary defenses. And welcome to normal neurosis. Okay. But at the origin point, let's say in this particular yeah. case, yeah. is this desire for, you know, an expressiveness of delight mm -hmm. and exuberance and, and livingness, right? And fascination with the world and curiosity. Okay. Great. So there can be an empathy with that layer inside yourself. Sometimes people then kind of bounce out. They imagine a kid outside them. Like, could we validate and can we empathize with that aliveness and that intensity even in a little kid so we can empathize with it? And can we, can we value it? 
And can we value it in our in ourselves way down deep? Can we value that impulse in that super deep layer inside us and kind of like cherish it and in effect bless it like a benediction, like mm-hmm. that desire is good. Yeah, you're a little loud, but the desire is good. Yeah, you're you're kind of interrupting. And the desire is good, and you and you who are identified with it as with that desire are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that's kind of a very powerful, good thing to do with oneself. Yeah, the point that you're making there about returning to source, I guess. I'm yeah. I'm not sure what the best way to put it is because I said. You know, how can I kind of claim that more in adulthood, which of course is, you know, that's a useful thing to do. Mm. And then you're you're kind of addendum to that of, oh, but wait, can you kind of return to the the proto you yeah. and value that in them as well? And I think that that's a wonderful distinction and a great point. Cause that can be kind of hard and that can be very soulful and feel very yes. emotionally touchy, I think, understandably yeah. very sensitive. That's right. And I think that alongside that, it's a wonderful tool for self-compassion. It's just a really, really good way of seeing in you the things that really are okay because they're driven by this underlying desire that is itself really okay. And absolutely bad behavior can be driven by good desires, of course. Mm -hmm. And we want to be kind of careful about how we manifest those desires out in the world. Yeah. But in general, you know, we can look at our deep knowing, our true desires, our uh, true values that come from a positive place. And I think that have a lot more self-compassion for them and and a lot more appreciation of them. Yeah, it's exactly right. And this can feel somewhat like a kind of soothing balm sinking down Mm. into the deeper layers of your being. And it's helpful to appreciate that this is not some exotic therapeutic technique. This is very fundamental. This is a process of repair Mm -hmm. and healing and Mm -hmm. clear seeing. In effect, you're giving yourself today, you're giving these really young layers in yourself today, a kind of clear seeing that was absent when you were younger. And part of that clear seeing is to recognize the good intentions, Mm -hmm. the inherently good intentions that are at the heart of every desire, even if the desire is expressed in ways that are genuinely problematic. So you're saying essentially to that little kid in you, I see you and you're okay. I know you have good intentions, right? And what you want is normal and natural. And it's all right. And often those deeper wants that we can value and appreciate are pretty true to our nature, our character. Like I'd say one thing very natural to you, Forrest, is this quality of delight and exuberance. It's really there. We could say for myself, let's say, the just a deep interest in understanding the heart of the matter that got me in trouble in Sunday school. (laughs) I would say, how did God really part the Red Sea? I just want to understand it. I'm not arguing. I want to understand it. How'd he do it? He, right? Is is God really a he? Why do we say God's a he? You know, they threw me out of Sunday school. Literally, they said, you know, Rick, 
shouldn't really come. I was like eight years old. Wow. <laughs> like, what's with that? And yet that quality in me that got me in trouble then, and I'm sure there was a little bit of ego and I didn't particularly like my Sunday school teacher. So I was probably being a bit of a, a brat there, but still at bottom, that desire to understand, to penetrate to the heart mm. of whatever matter it might be, which is kind of very much in my nature, you know, I can know, I can see that in adulthood. This is a very important thing to reclaim, even if, you know, sometimes it makes people uncomfortable. Sometimes we need to manage and nuance how we are and find relationships, frankly, in settings that are more delighted in <laughs> what delights us. Like you, finding places where you can be big, you can be large, you can be exuberant, you can be theatrical, you can be, uh, you know, a master of ceremonies in some areas that mm -hmm. I know you've mm -hmm. gone into, let's say with dance. Same with me, opportunities for me to do writing or do exploration or do meditations that are really, really, really about getting to the heart of the matter mm -hmm. and learning from others who've gone before us, who've really gotten to the heart of the matter. So yeah, when you reclaim some of your core, inherently good desires in yourself as a child, you often find yourself honoring and accepting and appreciating fundamental aspects of your temperament, your personality, your character today. Mm. To take everything we've talked about so far and try to kind of wrap it up into a couple of questions that somebody might want to ask themselves if they want to go through this process inside of their own life, kind of starting at the largest circle, the furthest out circle, which for many people is the most accessible one, you might start by asking yourself something like, what was I like when I was young? Because a lot of people have a basic feeling for a kind of accounting of what they were like, what would have been like to be in relationship with me, almost from an external perspective. When I was three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, whatever, 13 years old, but generally by 13, the world's kind of gotten in the way a little bit. Then the second question you might ask yourself, kind of one layer in, what are some of the things that I knew about the world? Or maybe what are some of the things that I was taught about the world when I was young? And sometimes the contrast between those two answers, what did I know and what was I taught, can itself give you some good insight. Yeah. And then finally, right at the core, I think it's the question that you really asked me. What were those core values that you had when you were young? Or maybe even a layer deeper than that, what is some kind of kernel of what we might call true nature, whatever that means to you, however you want to interpret that, that might have been present for you when you were young? And I think that if you kind of work backwards yeah. through those, you know, three and a half, four questions, however you kind of want to think about it, that can be really fruitful for people who are engaged in this sort of an inquiry. Yeah, very much so. And including what could you appreciate? about yourself today, mm. genuinely value and affirm and protect that is central to your character, central to your nature that you can recognize in yourself as a younger person and which may have been squelched in some ways when you were young. Yeah. One. And then two, are there some deep longings? some deep desires you had when you were a kid that didn't have any room in the life that you had mm. for whatever reasons, including understandable ones. Your parents were busy. 
They were in the armed forces. They you needed to move every year. There just it just wasn't happening. Maybe there was a sibling who had real issues. A lot of resources went into that kid. Understandably, what for whatever reason, there wasn't that place for it. And yet now you could make more room for that in your life. And I can say for myself, it's actually been really. I'm I'm becoming kind of an old guy. <laughs> But I'm still learning some new tricks, I guess, in my old age. And just in the last few years, I've been recognizing in myself as this little kid, including manifesting in my family with my parents, this longing to help, this longing to help people be happy and to not hurt so much. But I had so little opportunities as a kid to do that understandably. And it wasn't, there wasn't room for that in my life, but there's been a, an understanding that, wow, that's really central to kind of my nature actually. And now in my, you know, late middle age, (laughs) I can make more room for that particular desire. So that would be something else for people to think about. Yeah. I think that's really wonderful. Just what do you want to bring from this inquiry into your exploration now of your life as an adult, again, to kind of summarize that in a sort of tidy way. Dust off, maybe. Yeah, How, what do you want to dust off? What do you want to bring back? What do yeah. you want to bring more contact with? What has become yeah. obscured by just the process of living yeah. that we all go through? Related to that, maybe, Yeah. you've worked with a lot of families and also a lot of children for mm-hmm. years and years and years as a clinical psychologist. A big focus of your work was children and families. Are there lessons there, maybe from their behavior, from what those kids really cared about, from what you saw really make a difference, really matter in their lives at the core? Do you think that there are lessons that we can learn as adults from what those kids cared about? That's great. I think three things really pop out Mm -hmm. that we can deliver to children and make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think most people can think of an interaction they had as with an adult that might have been really brief and fairly passing, or they, they saw this person a handful of times somewhere, and it made a lifelong impact for them. Mm-hmm. We can really make a lifelong impact on children. So, And then you can also ask yourself, to what extent did you experience these three things yourself? Mm-hmm. And if not, what happened? <laughs> you know? What did you do about that, or how did that affect you? Yeah, and and kind of connected to that, what these what these kind of consistent desires that you've seen through a lot of clinical yeah. practice might tell us about our own core nature, you know, about what yeah. really matters to us deep down. Yeah. So first off, kids need to feel safe. Mm. Obviously, grownups too. But right off the top, what can you do to help this kid feel safe? Great. Maybe it means slowing it down. Maybe it means physically shifting so you're at their level. Maybe it means understanding fairly quickly what they're worried about, what they're anxious about, and doing what you can to address that. Uh, Communicating clearly, you're not going to hurt them, you're not going to harm them. You know, maybe it means communicating that they have control over the interaction so they can feel safer. You're not going to do anything that they don't want to have happen. They're safe. Really important. Second is that they're respected. They're listened to. They're taken seriously. 
I think about the adults who did not take me seriously as an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or a six-year-old or a 17-year-old. And then I think about the adults who actually took me seriously. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that they were patronizing me. They, you know, they had a PhD or something. You know, they were, they ran a business. They had 40 years of experience. They'd been in the army for 20 years. You know, they knew a lot of stuff. I didn't know. But bottom line, we met in some ways as horizontally. They listened. They listened. They took us seriously. And I think we can really listen to kids seriously. And when they recognize that actually we're listening to them seriously, unlike most of the grownups in their life, frankly, then they communicate a lot more to us. And then the third one is that they're valued, that they are things that they can contribute. Their ideas are worthy. They have a place. They matter. We're loyal to them. We're going to come looking for them. We're not going to leave them on the battlefield. Mm. And those three things, you know, communicating safety, receptivity, you know, them taking you seriously. You have standing as a kid. You have a voice. And third, that you, the child, have value. Mm. You know, you're going to be protected. You're going to be listened to. You're going to be valued. Everything else is details. Great. Yeah, I think that that's a wonderful list of three things. Safety, taken seriously, being valued. And I do think that that really matters both to every kid and also to every adult. You know, you think about the times in your life where you didn't feel safe, where you didn't feel like people were taking maybe your concerns seriously or your wants and needs seriously. And because of that, you didn't feel valued by other people. Those are some of the more psychologically distressful situations that a person can be in. And you really see the primacy of yeah. those needs, of those desires. Yeah. We could maybe talk another time about adolescence. Mm. That's a whole <laughs> particular period. And that's often where you know people end up taking a turn in their life that's problematic, that can have even really longstanding consequences. But one of the things I've particularly seen, I'll just maybe have this as a bit of a preview. Yeah, please. Kind of a mm -hmm. appetizer for adolescents is to feel that they have a path to a future they want. Mm -hmm. And often adults, including parents, teachers, say, oh, no, you need to walk this path, which is boring and hard and doesn't play to your strengths so that 10 years from now, you can live like I do. And yet the kid doesn't want to live like that person does. And they can recognize the ways in which that person, that adult, is unhappy mm, and drinks mm -hmm. too much to anesthetize <laughs> themselves or eats too much or watches too much stupid TV or who knows what else they do. Yeah. And that's crazy. So if we're going to ask adolescents to train themselves and develop themselves in various ways, it has to make sense to them that there's a path that leads to a future 10 years from now, et cetera, that is realistic and they actually will care about. And along the way, going to the point of being valued, that they have opportunities for contribution. That's one of the things mm. that really is soul crushing, to deny people the opportunity to contribute. And in traditional cultures, 
adolescents had very significant roles. My dad grew up on a ranch. He, you know, when he was 13, when he was nine, he was driving a tractor. I mean, he had a role. Yeah. He had important things he needed to be doing there. And that was great. And he could feel like what he was doing had worth. So anyway, we often deny adolescents opportunities in our culture today to have any kind of opportunity for contribution. And then we tell them to defer gratification for 10 years while doing stuff they don't like doing that plays to their weaknesses and not their strengths for the sake of a future that is fool's gold and you know not really what they care about. Not very good at all. Yeah, great appetizer. Really, really good summary of maybe the whole episode that we would have done and may still do in the future. I think you're totally right, where a lot of the... Man, I, I'm thinking back to myself as a kid, and I think about what were the things that caused me suffering? Sure, you don't want to suffer, but really, what were the things that caused me the whiff of despair, if you will? <laughs> like, mm. the things that had the whiff of despair to them. Yeah. And man, very, very high up the list is exactly what you're describing, this, this idea of there's this kind of distant future 30 years from now, and that's when you're kind of allowed to be happy. And until then, it's just a grind, man. And you just kind of got to get used to it. Mm. Oh, man. And I know that, that that is many people's experience of life. And for me, I just think that that's, you know, it's a second of social commentary, but just one of the absolute worst ways that we've set up our society. And it is so many people's experience of the world. And that does absolutely carry the whiff of despair to me. And the extent to which we can help people kind of free themselves from that circumstance. And I think that that's incredibly noble work out in the world, including through, you know, in some small way, the ways in which how we think about those circumstances can impact our experience of them. But I think that this was great for this episode. Good. I think this was a really good exploration of this material that we could spend certainly a lot more time with. I know that topics related to developmental psychology come up on the podcast a lot. They're very rich for both of us. We care yeah. about these topics a lot. And I'm sure that we will spend more time talking about the impact of childhood and developmental experiences and how we can bring that child nature evermore into our lives today. Yeah. If I could offer a bonus practice that people might want to do too, to write a letter to yourself as a child. Yeah, I love this one. This one's really great. Yeah, pick yourself. You could do a different ages, 14, 4, 10, as a newborn. What would you say? And you can imagine just imagining it can be quite touching and literally write something out. What would you want to tell that being? And then in a funny kind of way, you can experience a shift from being the writer of the letter, the transmitter, to being the receiver of this communication. You can even imagine, if you want to go deep into it, mm. kind of moving back and forth between your adult self and your child self, and they're having a relationship and interaction with each other, in which the adult is communicating things to the younger being, who's then maybe communicating things to the adult you, back and forth, and kind of give it room to breathe if you do this. Let the dynamic unconscious unfold as it will and allow yourself to be surprised even perhaps by some of what bubbles up here. Mm. Don't get into trouble with this. You know, don't get sucked into the black hole of trauma. You know, be careful, obviously, if there are any concerns in that regard. But I think generally speaking, most people can do that exercise really fruitfully. Yeah. Great exercise. Great idea. Strongly recommend to people if they want to take that on. 
And I think it's also just a lovely note to close today's episode on. Good. So today we talked about getting back in touch with who we were as children. Or maybe put another way, what did you know when you were young? And how did that knowing change when the world started to get in the way? What were some of the behaviors that you started to edit? What were the things that you changed about how you presented to other people? And what were the parts of yourself that you started to increase your separation from? Maybe even parts that you really loved down deep inside. I started the podcast by sharing my own process, about this process that I've been going through over the last certainly five years, maybe even longer than that, of increasingly getting into touch with who I was as a kid and exploring how my core nature might have really dictated some of the behaviors that sort of got me into trouble with other people when I was younger. I was a sociable, extroverted person who really wanted to be perceived as fundamentally good, and I really liked other people and wanted to be liked by them. And not everyone wanted that little extroverted fireball in their midst when I was, say, seven or six years old. And then, understandably, the world pushed back on me. I got some negative feedback about some of those behaviors, and I started to edit in different ways, some of which were totally socially appropriate. At the time, there are some impulses, some childish behaviors that you don't necessarily want to take with you into adulthood. But at the same time, there were also parts of myself that I was becoming increasingly divorced from. I was becoming more rigid, I was becoming more restrained with other people, increasingly locked into this kind of highly cognitive way of doing things, and just losing touch with my authentic interior. And one of the real processes that I've gone through as an adult is trying to get back in contact with that person that I was when I was young with the things that I really knew deep inside. And Rick led me through a wonderful process of trying to find that contact again, where we talked about these different layers of knowing, knowing maybe what we were like when we were young, then going in a layer to what we knew when we were young and how that knowing was different from what we were taught or told by other people. And then maybe toward the heart of it, what was our core nature when we were young? What were our values? What did we really want to express out in the world? We closed the conversation by talking about some of the things that really matter to children, and Rick highlighted these three key needs that basically all kids have. They want to feel safe, they want to be taken seriously, and they want to feel valued by the world around them and by the people that they're in relationship with. And yes, these things really matter to kids. But hey, they also matter to me as well, and they probably matter to you. And I think that there's a lot there to learn about. What are the circumstances in life where we feel safe, where we feel respected or considered or valued? And I think that there's a lot that we can take from that as adults. What are the circumstances in life where we feel safe? What are the circumstances where we feel like people are taking us seriously? And when do we feel valued by others? Most of the time, increasingly putting ourselves into those circumstances is going to come with a lot of wonderful benefits. We closed with Rick offering a really great little practice, writing a letter to yourself as a young person. What would you want to tell that person? What would you want to validate about them? And maybe what would they tell you in return? 
That's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would subscribe to us through the platform of your choice, and hey, maybe even leave a comment, a rating, a positive review, whatever feels good for you. Also, you could tell a friend about us. It's one of the best ways for the podcast to reach new people, and we really appreciate it. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. So until next time, thanks for listening.